You are listening to Living the Dream, the podcast of the Hoo Ha Group. You're here with uh, Rob and Dave. You can follow me on Twitter at with sober senses. Rob, are you on Twitter? I am, but it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Okay, <laughs> so no one wants to listen to what I have to say. It's fine. What are we talking about today? Uh, so um, I contacted Dave because I guess for a while now I've been doing research in and working in the uh, human services sector, um, and we sort of wanted to talk about building on some of the stuff that Dave has done in the past and others about social reproduction Mm -hmm. um, and specifically um, the role of the emerging role of finance in social reproduction. What do we mean about, so what what do we mean by the concept of social reproduction under capitalism? Um, A bit of a discussion about the emergence and the changing nature of what many people would view as the welfare state. Mm -hmm. Um, And probably just, um, yeah, so a bit of a, a historical and um, up-to-date analysis of, of that kind of stuff. Um, and just a qualifier, I mean, we're not going to talk about, um, oh, we will touch on it, but this isn't going to be, there's huge other big issues within this discussion, obviously around gender and race and sexuality and a whole bunch of other things that influence, you know, the sort of ideology and the institution of social reproduction as we know it. Um, this is mainly going to focus on the role of the state within the sort of, social reproduction under capitalism. So there's so obviously classically huge... what we call welfare or now yeah. you say is, is defined as human, human services. services or social services. So how do we have an understanding of how yes. that works in capitalism generally, um, yeah. specifically, but also some of the new developments that are going on? Because yeah. I think one of the things that a lot of has gained a lot of attention has been the development of things like social impact bonds. Yeah. Um, but it's really unclear what they are, yes. what's driving them. So hopefully we'll be able to flesh some of that stuff out as well. Yeah, part of us putting in a bit of context. So there's obviously other massive t- talking points that we're not going to cover today that mm. we'll just touch on. But I think there can be other avenues to have those discussions, which will be um, probably more useful than trying to jam it into a discussion about these things. Yeah. So maybe just to start, you've mentioned this concept of social reproduction. Social reproductions become kind of more popular in political discussions. Uh, there's a very good magazine viewpoint that we'll link to. Its latest issue is all about social reproduction. When you use that term, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I see it more, I guess, as a... I mean, there, I think there's a common understanding amongst, I guess, the radical left that it's about, you know, at the base level, reproducing the ne- next generation of, of workers for the yeah. system, which essentially is correct. So this is how this is coming from the feminist debates, which want to look yeah. at what role does, say, often housework play, yeah. and this is reproducing labour power and yeah. as a way of understanding social Yeah, which I think essentially is, is abstractly correct, but obviously there's a lot of nuance into how that happens and it changes. Yeah. Um, and I think if we view capital as not just an economic but also a social relation, mm-hmm. then that brings in them to a lot different more dynamics into how that actually happens. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, whilst it's a probably quite crude way, crude and correct way to describe social reproduction yeah. as this, the reproduction of, of workers mm-hmm. um, to, you know, con- ensure the continued profitability of capital. Um, I think there's much, a lot of effort goes into how that happens, mm-hmm. which I think is less explored yeah, by discussions around this stuff. And, you know, the changing nature and role of institutions within that. Um, so I think if we take a more general view of capital as a social relation, um, it sort of broadens the discussion and I think is much more fruitful. Yeah, because I guess one of the ways that I think about it is, you know, you can look at kind of the capitalist mode of production as it's described in capital, right, and that looks at mainly the production of commodities. And, and the production of commodities, the production of surplus value, 
It's reinvestment in, in terms of capitalism. And that explains a really important dynamic in capitalist society. And a lot of capitalist society is reproduced that way. But for any kind of profitable capitalist mode of production to exist, it has to fit into a broader social frame. And social reproduction refers often generally to all that other stuff, like what produces the dominant ideas, how do you deal with injured workers, how do you ensure kind of educational levels, all this kind of stuff. And I, I guess the thing that is interesting for me is there's no great wall of China between capital accumulation proper, proper, like proper and social reproduction. You know, right. Sometimes the state might do it as a non-profitable activity. Yeah. Sometimes it's done as a profitable activity by the state. Then it's always kind of contested, like who pays for it? Like what are its levels? And, how, and I think a lot of um, what we're dealing with in terms of debates in Australia is actually about social reproduction. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not framed that way. No. And so I think there's something interesting about framing social reproduction yeah. that leads to a I different mean, I, analysis. I think the obsession with productivity mm-hmm. yeah. is part pure economics and pure you know, profitability, etc. Yeah. But the other part of it is how do we construct a social framework mm-hmm. to actually increase productivity? And mm-hmm. a lot of the discussion from the state and from various sort of institutional actors is focused around getting the kind of policy settings right, in mm-hmm. inverted commas, which is as much about social reproduction as it is about, you know, getting the kind of economic factors right yeah. as well. So I think it's it's much harder to have this discussion. Mm-hmm. It's much more complex. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if we have it properly, the outcomes of that will be a lot better than just having a kind of quite limited analysis or a limited discussion about this stuff. Which frames it as there's a welfare state, which is a good thing, yeah. and then there's a market, which is a bad thing. Yeah. They're counter-opposed to each other. We're on the team welfare state. Yeah. But understanding a lot of those welfare um, services are about the reproduction of capitalist society. Yeah, and about control and about, um, you know, sort of how it happens because obviously it's very different now mm-hmm. to what was in existence in the 1960s and 70s, even though the state as a percentage of the economy actually spends more money. Mm-hmm. Um not on necessarily on social welfare. They probably probably still dispense an equivalent amount, but yeah. um, the state as an actor in the economy has actually grown, mm-hmm. just slightly, but grown, which grates with that narrative of the state stepping back. Okay, so let's maybe get into that a little bit. So, look, I'll play the role of putting out the narrative. So, <laughs> in kind of left debates, pretty much for the last 30 years, you've heard this argument, and this argument is there was something called the welfare state that developed over the 50s and 60s, and that was a good thing. Um, possibly the high point was under the Gough government, leading like, almost like a step on the road to socialism. <laughs> it's often phrased that way. Then something happened called neoliberalism. It's stepped in, attacked welfare. Welfare has been reduced and people have been thrown on to the messy terrain of the market. That's often the dominant narrative, right? What's wrong with that? What's a different way of understanding what's going on? Well, I mean, the way I'd approach that, firstly, two differences probably. Um, firstly, the notion of the market, mm-hmm. I think, has always existed outside of capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, there were markets before. And I think the thing which distinguishes the market under capitalism is because of that social relation. I mean, I think you read, um, I think it's Giovanni Arrighi's book mm-hmm. about the development of finance under feudalism. It's quite actually quite funny, the, the Venetian financiers going to the King of England to get their money back and he just tells them to get stuffed. Yeah, yeah. And they can't do anything because they don't have that kind of institutional arrangement they don't to have the state compel power. them to, yeah. to the, 
for England to pay. Whereas now, because that wouldn't be envisaged of happening, let's look at Greece, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so the notion that the market's this thing that only exists under capitalism, which I think is is quite prevalent, um, mm-hmm. is kind of wrong. It's the kind of social relation that capital and the institutional arrangement has with the market, which I think is the, the real determining factor in that. Um, and what was the second point again? Um, that we've, we've seen this period of the welfare state was oh, a social yeah. benefit. Yeah. Like the welfare state was a victory on, on the road to an alternative society. Yeah. So I think the, well, I guess I treat neoliberalism as a historical period. So what do you mean by that? So I mean, so often neoliberalism is treated as a unitary political thought that post-1975 economic mm-hmm. crisis, neoliberals came in into particularly Western governments um, and instituted a whole raft of uh, different policies um, and, you know, sort of privatisation, all that kind of stuff, cuts, that sort of thing, um, and that they sort of formed this political current which went around and did that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, say, I would say it's, it's quite different, the experience of the post-75 crisis in different countries, um, and I would treat it more less of a sort of unitary political movement mm-hmm. and much more of a historical period where capital had to come up with a new arrangement. And that arrangement... Who did that in the countries and how it came about is actually quite different um, mm-hmm. from so. State, so, from for example, in Australia, it was the Labor Party and the trade yes. unions through the accord. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas in other, in you know, it was in the UK, it was Thatcher. Yeah, and I guess for me, if, if you're going to periodise it, like I would always want to link it to things like changes in the way that work was organised, changes in the geographical organisation of work. Yeah. You know, all the, a broader picture of. Attempting to periodise capitalism at a certain yeah. time rather than just like a bad set of ideas with bad people yeah. slash it was all Friedman's fault. Yeah, and I think a way, of, a way of actually looking at that I think is if you go back to the like Hayek, for example, is quite interesting mm. in that a lot of his writings were not economic writings. No. They were social. It was, mm. it was social science, yeah. essentially what he was doing. He was writing social science polemics mm-hmm. um, pretty much from the 50s onwards. Yeah. Um, very few sort of heavy economic texts did he write. Yeah, beyond the um, 1930s. No, yeah. you know, like you just don't see them. So yeah. I think in that sense it puts it in the context of, well, it was a change in the kind of social context, I think, um, as well as the economic, and that happened differently. And I think the, the real key for me to that is that state expenditure has basically stayed the same mm-hmm. as a percentage of the economy. Even though economies have grown massively since cool. 75, um, the... the the size of the state has actually sort of increased. So the the, the narrative that um, between like the right and the left that post mid seventies the market has won, the state has retreated, is not factual. No, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. it's it's the, the what it does is different. Yeah. But its role in society has maintained. I yeah, think. I think that's probably the the bit we'll move into next to talking about how maybe what the welfare state was but also um, how it has changed because I think that's probably more the concrete and more interesting yeah. part. The, the other thing that I always want to kind of re-emphasise if we're talking about the periodisation, the shift from what we might call you know, Keynesian, Keynesianism, so capitalism from the end of the Second World War to the mid-70s and then from the mid-70s to now is to understand the mid-70s was a period of massive social struggle. Mm. The, the transformation in how capitalism was organised wasn't just driven at the level of ideas but about popular rebellion. And this popular rebellion was often often happening on the terrain of social reproduction. Yeah. So it was rebellion both in the factory in the factory proper, but also in the universities, in the home, in the street, in the hospital. Yeah. You know, about social services. Yeah. So that's a really important. And I part think it was a story. rebellion against 
the kind of things that we don't want to see reimposed, mm. you know, around re- reproductive freedoms and, yep. um, you know, women having a role and women being able to work and not yep. having to quit when they get married and, you know, the marginalisation of, um, of of race in Australia of, you know, Aboriginal yeah, and Torres Strait yeah. Islanders, which is things that you'd say there's been huge development since the 50s, yep. but the kind of society that we sort of idolise in the welfare state was actually really brutal um, mm. in that regard. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, I guess in that sense, I think, because um, I think if we're talking about Keynesianism as a as a as a kind of idea, I think it'd be just as it's wrong with neoliberalism to say, oh, there's a bunch of neoliberals who have the same ideas. It's just as wrong of of Keynesianism to say the same thing. Yeah. So, if people, it's like John Maynard Keynes, um, famous ec- economist, wrote a, a, a sort of key book. What's it called? Unemployment. General, oh, the general, general theory, theory of, of un- money, money interest, else. and employment. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. I have read it. Um, yeah. but I think it's referred to as just the general theory. So the general theory. Yeah. All right. Um, so, I mean, that's so that was published in 1933. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, at the cusp, at the key point in the in the, in the Great Depression, um, and that became quite a important text in, in instituting things like what we would call the social wage. Yeah. So the social wage as it became instituted, was not necessarily based on welfare, but it was based on the concept of full employment. Mm-hmm. So the state would be a guarantor of full employment in an economy, mm-hmm. even if that meant it, it owned and operated its own firms mm-hmm. to provide employment. I mean, I think that was the real underpinning of Keynesianism and the, the concept of a welfare state. Because if everyone has jobs, obviously the, the role of welfare is not... That big. In in fact, it's relatively minimal, right? Yeah. But what is added on is is a so is a social wage. Yeah. So, and I think another way of thinking about this is so uh, Antonio Negri has an essay about Keynes, and again he links it to social struggle, which is saying that that basically you know the the revolutions at the end of the First World War made working class power an undeniable factor of capitalist society. You it, it was it was a reality because a successful revolution had taken part. And Keynes's work is largely about how do you build class peace. Yeah. And so you know, like uh, it, it's a, I think it's a really strong. The last chapter of the general theory, you know, he basically makes this argument saying if we don't intervene into liberal capitalism, someone else will. Right. You know that this is going to happen. Mm. So then you have the end of the Second World War. You have the the Allies win. You have strike waves in the United States. You have strike waves in in the UK. You have all these people who come back from fighting fascism. They're not going back to what's happened before. And the welfare state as a social wage and guaranteed employment, it happens in that area. But something you mentioned before, it also had a global dimension to it, right? You could only have the welfare state in the north because there was a global division of labour put through the Bretton Woods and enforced with brutal imperialism, right? It was a global agreement, essentially, that we are not going to compete like we did before Mm -hmm. in a global economic context. So, you know... The GATT Treaty, Bretton Woods, the IMF, the World Bank, all the things that are associated with the worst excesses of neoliberalism mm-hmm. were actually constructions of Keynesian liberalism. Yeah. Um, so I think I find that quite interesting, actually, um, in the sense that this kind of system was global sort of compromise was set up to facilitate yeah, yeah. what happened in countries like Australia. Um, at, at the same time, that those institutions were so easily able to easily transition into something mm. different I think says something about the underlying assumptions um, of those organizations um, in the sense that you know they weren't necessarily about the things 
mm-hmm. that were associated with the the concept of a welfare of a welfare yeah. state. Um, they are about something different. I mean, Keynes was himself was a massive liberal. Mm-hmm. You know, that he saw the the um, kind of construction of liberal institutions as key to mm-hmm. that sort of of international liberal institutions as a key thing in the national project mm-hmm. as well. And I think that's important to note that the dynamic now between the state, the the national, international was also replicated there. Probably less, obviously less due to techno- technological changes, less um, connected, but it was still quite strong um, that sort of a, st- a stability in the international realm was essential for mm-hmm. stability in the national realm. So you get this kind of like post-Second World War welfare state. Uh, it has a global dimension to it. Really interestingly, um, without being too wonkish, one of the things that held this global thing together was that uh, on, on the level of currency, the US dollar was pegged to gold and all other currencies were pegged to the US dollar. By the end of the 60s, due in part both to the Vietnam War but also social welfare expenditure, that the US has produced so many dollars that the rest of the world looks around and goes, actually, what is it worth? And so there's this fantastic story I think Varoufakis uses in the Global Minotaur where apparently the French Premier or yeah. whatever, Pompidou, like, yeah, yes. sends, a, sends a battleship battleship over and says, Just like, gold. all right, give us all our gold, we'll <laughs> yeah. give you your US dollars. And then, you know, quite later, Nixon in 71 delinks it and blows yeah. the whole thing up. Yeah. But the thing that's really interesting, I think, about that moment was one of the reasons the, the global structure fell apart is that struggles on the level of the welfare state for, like, expanded amounts of state-funded social reproduction drove US government spending to such a level that this whole thing cracked and fell apart, which I think is really, really, really fascinating. Yeah. And also shows that in some ways that, like, why did the social wage of the Keynesian period end? Well, because we broke it, yeah. right? Like, it, it was demands for more of it and to transform it that yeah. broke it. Yeah, and it could have gone either way, right? So it could have gone, it could have gone our way, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, um, or it, had to, it went the but it went the other way. Partly yeah. because I think it not only broke the national yeah, yeah. aspect, but it, the international system. Um, the you know the sort of contradictions, I guess, of Keynesian capitalism mm-hmm. started to show by the mid seventies, and you had this combination of uh, a, a working classes across, particularly the developed world, but even in the non developed world as mm. well, pushing for more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had, you know, a, a collapse of the of the, yeah. of the economy due to you know, overproductivity and yeah. um, lack of profits and deflation and all the rest of it. I mean, people often associate it with the oil shock. Yeah, um, but that was productive. a contributing factor, I think. Yeah. But there was serious concerns even in the mid '60s about um, all this, you know, sort of overproduction and under uh, under profitability and, and that kind of thing. And I think it's one of the ways to think about this really concretely is a lot of people say you work in the welfare industry now. A lot of people work for organisations that started in the 70s as radical projects, yeah, yeah. right? So, like, particularly a year, year and a half ago, Rascal was, t- was talking to us about, uh, on the podcast, about, you know, some of the attacks that have happened in, in New South Wales against women's refuges. All of those organisations that run women's refuges, radical feminist organisations that began in the 70s. Same with homelessness, um, uh, talking with my partner earlier about, you know, the Residential Tenants Authority started originally with a social justice. So, like, in that period of the 70s, there's mm-hmm. all these alternative welfare structures that emerge. There's a real explosion of that stuff, I think. Um, and, I mean, we can get up. This is probably getting on to what we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. So um, we can move on, I guess, to... 
I guess what you would call the evolution of the concept of a welfare state. Okay, that sounds brilliant. Post the crisis. Yes. So um, I think Australia is a very specific... I'm going to concentrate on Australia because obviously we live here yeah. and we should understand what's happening yes. in our own backyard. So Australia's, I think Australia is particularly interesting because we, you have the Gough coup, you know, Gough's the Governor-General kicks him out, there's an election, the Conservatives win, but the Conservatives are unable to break, you know, the the, I guess the institutions that maintain that system. So yeah. huge, um, like quite a large level of struggle in the late 70s and early 80s in, in Australia, um, high wages growth, there was also a resources boom at the mm-hmm. same time, um, yet by sort of 82, 83, that's really starting to crumble. Mm-hmm. And then you get election of Bob Hawke and a landslide, yeah. um, quite a popular sort of character um, who then has, who's, I think, you know, people should read his quite small book called The Resolution of Conflict, which he wrote as ACTU um, president. I've never read that. Um, <laughs> so it's basically like to get the economy back on track, everyone has to kind of get get along um, mm. is essentially the message, which he transis- transferred into government. So you had that big forum with employer groups, unions, all the rest of it, which developed the concepts of like the Accord and that kind of thing, and, and I guess developed an understanding that the the old way was gone. Yeah. And that was just as much true for capital in Australia as it was for, for, for workers, I think, mm. because you had a whole bunch of... I mean, Australians sort of... Prote- we had a quite a intense protection system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, what's interesting is that, like, the Keynesians never agree with protection. Mm-hmm. That's why you had this kind of instit- international liberal consensus. Mm. So you didn't have protection... Because his analysis was that's how the First World War started yep. because you had these overprotected economies that would devalue their currencies and there was intense yep. competition between states. So to overcome that, you come up with an illiberal institutional arrangement. So, But we Australia still had quite a strong protection regime up until Whitlam, actually. Whitlam's the one that cut protection by 25%. That's really amazing, isn't it? So um, like the, it's actually yeah. the Labor governments. It's always been Labor. Most. So there was um, it's, it really interesting research done by a whole bunch of people um, about how... The free trade. So, in the Conservative Party, in the Liberal Party, you had old school conservatives who were protectionists, and then you had sort of free marketers, mm-hmm. which has always had in Australia. There's been a history of that. Um, and then, so there was much more actually in common between Labor Keynesians and the and the free marketers in the Liberal Party mm-hmm. than there was between those two um, sort of divisions in the Liberal Party. That's really interesting. Uh, because obviously, you know, like it's sort of this sort of liberal internationalism and stuff. Mm. Um, so once Whitlam gets in, tariffs are cut by 25%. Under the guise of, you know, um, sort of it's benefiting the bosses. Taxpayers' mm. money is benefiting the bosses. So it's sort of this, and this is, I think, an ongoing characteristic of Australian sort of governance. The market can help the class. Mm-hmm. Kind of a like dialogue, I guess, against these kind of, institutionally corrupt capitalists kind mm. of thing. Um, I think the other point that is probably really important to put in is Hawke's ability not just to pull together political organisations but in the 80s to promote an attractive mode of life, mm. right? Like I think one of the... When people are having debates about neoliberalism either as ideology or period, what they forget is that how appealing its model of life was to so many people because it had an implicit critique, an explicit critique of the greyness and boredom of the welfare state period, mm. right? And in many ways, like the revolts of the 60s and 70s, often it will revolt against boredom, yeah. right? That, that, that this was a, a grey time of dull office work, yeah. 
re- repetition, cultural, life, cultural philistinism. Yeah, like, culturally, you know, and so yeah, to, like, yeah. to associate these transformations yeah. with an idea of a cosmopolitan world of choice, mm. of dynamism, yeah. of life, of lifestyle. Like, I think that's really, really crucial. Mm. That not only could you get the unions a part of the accord, but you could win a large section of the class that this would be a more desirable life mm. that people were going yeah, to live. Which on. I think is is because, and that sort of buys into the fact that what we would classify as our version of, or our kind of legacy version of the welfare state, mm. was actually largely constructed post post the crisis in seventy five. Yeah. Um, it was largely constructed by labour. So um, the kind of thing that we have now um, didn't really exist in its form yeah. pre, the, pre the crisis. Um, it's, much, it's much more of a creation of the neoliberal period. Because one of the things that it has to deal with is much larger structural unemployment. Yeah, like 5 to 10% so yeah, so, on average. So this is a really interesting in change. So um, during the Keynesian period... Unemployment in Australia hovers around about two percent, right? So one of the things. Well, I think there was a. I read a thing, and there was like a, 1962. There was like a huge crisis because unemployment had reached two percent. Yeah, I was like, what the hell is going on? Well, it's it's even like people talk about the early seventies as a period of stagflation, and one of the things that's meant to determine stagflation is rising unemployment. But it was still only four or five percent, you know. So in that period, unemployment's much lower. So it's mainly it's look on the whole, it's only men who are really in the workforce beyond Mm -hmm. getting married. Post late seventies, the new orthodoxy becomes that you don't actually want unemployment lower than five percent. Yeah. You know, part of the argument during the neoliberal period is if unemployment is lower than 5%, it'll drive up wages, drive up inflation. If you drive up inflation, this will make prices not function as an effective information system and you'll, it'll cause crisis. So one of the things you then have to do from the late 70s on is the emergence of permanent large-scale unemployment, yep. Yep. right? And so this means both, um, both direct welfare payments but also it means managing a sizable section of the population that are cut out of the wage, mm. right, and therefore are going to have generationally worse outcomes, obviously caught up in patterns of yeah. already existing racism yeah. as well. And you also have the institution of the healthcare system. So Medibank, proposed mm. by Whitlam, struck out by the Conservatives, but yeah. then brought Medicare, brought in by a Labor government, huge, yeah. um, you know, sort of healthcare for all kind of thing. Yeah. Um, um, if you have free university education up until the late eighties, um, was was actually, it was actually more there was more free education in the post near post Keynesian. So yeah, what's that about? You know, well, I think it's um, partly the shift in the Australian economy to become something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so they needed a lot of sort of um, university educated, educated yeah. people. I mean, so the look, division of labour. Look at the right? US system. The US was always a mass system. Yeah, you know, even way back in the fifties and stuff, it was always a mass system. Uh, whereas ours was really only a mass system mm-hmm. in that later period um, and going into now. And I think that that's, they needed it. And once they didn't need it so much or they had enough what they thought they needed, mm-hmm. then you bring in the payments. Yeah, I, I, I guess as well, you know, like I, I would, you know, put on again my you know, more kind of post-workerist hat <laughs> that part of this is driven as a, as a flight of workers from various forms of unemployment, you know, employment as well, that people desert mm-hmm. uh, Nine to five blue collar work want to do other things, and capital has to somehow respond to that in its restructuring of industries yeah. and expansion of higher education yeah. is one of those things. And I think all of this is encompassed in the kind of idea that if neoliberalism won and was so dominant mm. as a political current, mm-hmm. why did the welfare state remain? Mm-hmm. 
you know, if 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 that's if the political current was so strong and yeah. so dominant, so if you read stuff like I don't know, even Michael Pusey's book mm. about it, about you know, it's sort of this persuasive, you know, ideology mm. in the public service. Like, why did they keep it then? Yeah, and I think partly it's because they're not as dominant. the The ideology or unitary thought of neoliberalism is not as dominant as what people make it out to be. But also um, because I think they recognise that they need it, and also the structural reality of capitalism. Yeah. You know, the com- the complexity of the structural reality of capitalism win- is more more driving yeah. than anyone's ideas, yeah. right? And I think it's it's crucial actually the way it's the development of sort of human services and either government provided or not yeah. is for it to become more punitive, um, more controlling. Um, and that kind of stuff, and more disciplinary. And so this unfolds over a period, over I think the next so, yeah. decades. Yeah. So if you look at the way like Centrelink has evolved out of its predecessors, mm-hmm. it's much more, you know, sort of punitive um, than it when it was before. And I think that that acts as a mechanism of control. Um, but also, I mean, and this is probably getting into the next part of our discussion. It's a it's a chance for financial gain for mm-hmm. capital. Um, I mean, selling's a great example of that. Okay, so actually, let, let's talk about that because <laughs> this is the thing that I think is often missing in the discussion. Is we talk about under the neoliberal period, there's an expansion of welfare, right, to deal with things that are no longer provided with full unemployment and also a new series of demands. The provision of that is really complicated, right? Yeah. So, who provides welfare in Australia? Um, well, I think. Originally, it was the state, right? Yeah, that did it, and so maybe charitable institutions. Charitable would institutions would have their own charity. So once cha- and charitable institutions sort of grew, yeah, seventies um, and eighties, um, and they became, I guess, the so government started making co like contributions to a charity. So you're already running this probably quite horrific home for children where <laughs> there's institutional abuse or yeah. whatever. Um, which you know is it's, it's, it's an ongoing, ongoing issue problem. for the yeah. for the sector to deal with. And haven't some of them haven't dealt with that well? But anyway, that's another whole discussion. Again, a qualifier from the start. Yeah. So we'll make a contribution to the your existing expense. So mm-hmm. it might be oh we'll put in one third or one half to your already existing charity money to help you run that service because we realise that it's an important service as mm-hmm. well. And, so and when, does it, when does it emerge? Uh, I reckon probably from the 70s onwards. You know, yeah. you know, Whitlam set up all the... There was a whole bunch of women's shelters set up yeah. under, under, under Whitlam to deal with, you know, women escaping domestic violence, relationships. Yeah. And a lot of the shelters that exist now are sort of um, legacies from that time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's undergone periods of funding and not funding and all the rest of it. But I think that's a good example. There's others like that. So, you know... Multicultural resource centres, you yeah, know. Like, I just even things like large ch- church charities that yeah. run respite centres and have always sort of yeah. run stuff like that, um, or, you know, shelters and that kind of yeah. thing, homelessness shelters, started getting co-contributions from government. Yeah. As that's evolved, mm-hmm. um, governments have then, like, like those charities, most of their money started coming from governments. Mm-hmm. And then you get a sort of grant system where the government allocates a certain amount of money for the, the provision of social services from not from them but from the NGO sector. And so to get, to get specific, like a, a grant funds a service like to do a whole range of things? Kind of, yeah. So a grant is like a we're working with you to produce this stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, and there's been a shift in that though. So a grant is a kind of we're granting your organisation to provide this service. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was kind of, it was more of a kind of, um, two-way thing, I guess. Yeah. 
Whereas now, and I think this has happened in Queensland under Newman and it's continued under Labor in places like New South Wales and Victoria, it's been happening for a while. And in the, like the UK, perverse, like is this, it's kind of this laboratory for social services, what they would call quote-unquote innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've been doing this for a long time. And a huge example of, uh, they're always used as an example in Australia because obviously it's a, an equivalent system almost, but also there's been lots of changes around this kind of stuff. So now it's shifting into this idea of procurement of services. Mm-hmm. So we're not granting money. The state is not granting money anymore. We're purchasing a service. So the idea of procurement comes from stuff like main roads, for example, needs mm-hmm. X tons of gravel mm-hmm. every year to maintain the roads. So we'll go and buy gravel from a series of suppliers to get the best deal. Yeah. So in procurement for private business and for government has been this kind of methodology of purchasing for a while now. So it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a series of processes and policies and how governments interact with the market to get good deals. And it's traditionally been limited to, you know, like physical things. Mm-hmm. Like but now gravel. it's moving to... But like now they've rolled it out into human services. So you mean like homelessness care? Yeah, or we, the, gov- the, the government procures homelessness services from homelessness organisations. And, so, and so, just so, I'm, just so I'm 100% about this, like previously, say I'm a, a society, a, a organisation, an NGO, non-pro- I'm a non-profit NGO that provides homelessness services. Previously, part of my funding would just be like a block grant. Yeah. So every year I'd get X amount of money and then I can go, okay, I need to spend it there, I need to spend it there, these yeah. kind of things. And, and you might pre- do a little report to say, here's what we did. We're efficient. We'd be like, all right, yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. We no didn't. Worries. We just didn't take this and go on a holiday to the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah. But so with procurement, the, the shift is... And I'm now, not saying that that was necessarily a good situation either. This no. is just how it's changed. With procure- procurement now is that rather than funding my entire organisation, that you as the government will go, we will buy the housing of 10, you know, yeah. beds for 10 people for six months. Yeah. You know, and if I do five other things, I've got to work out where I'm going to get yeah, the we money don't, from. We don't want that. And is there an attempt to make it like a competitive yeah. market? So that's the next step in the sense that if you're procuring a service like, if you're procuring a service like that, obviously you want competitive tenders. Mm-hmm. So you, there is, you, you instituting that change automatically treats human services as a market mm-hmm. rather than as what was it traditionally might be known as a sector. So it's trying to encourage market behaviour in, quote-unquote, the NGO sector. And I, I guess one of the ways that, you know, I think about this is part of what a, what a capitalist market does is through companies making commodities and attempting to sell them, there's a coercive process which means you have to sell them at a certain price, mm. which leads to disciplining how you work internally, yeah. right? If you're going to get tea bags at a competitive rate, you've got to organise your internal productive processes in a way that meets yeah. that social average. So I imagine part of the driving attempt here is if you move to procurement, you're going to transform internally how NGOs operate. Oh, yeah, big time. And some of the big ones drove that change themselves as well. Some of the NGOs did. Yeah, so... The, I guess they, you know, some of the big ones or the more, what you, I, I mean, the, I'm sick of hearing the word innovative, but some of the more innovative, quote unquote, mm-hmm. ones would actually latch onto that and mm-hmm. drive it themselves as well and become part of that process of calling themselves an industry, calling themselves yeah. a market. We exist in a market. We're here to sell services. Um, so part of that change in government behaviour was also latched onto and partly that, driven that by the, the it, sector itself. 
And I'm not saying that, I mean, obviously the change in government policy was the pre, the, the key yeah. driver, but it's not like the SEPTI, it's not like there was unified opposition to this kind of much more market-driven environment mm. either, which is part of the ongoing weakness of the I think, I think that's that, services. I think that's fascinating because going back to the original conversation we had about social reproduction, you know, part of the problem for capitalism about social reproduction is that if something does, if something isn't a commodity, a thing with a price on it, that the kind of implicit mechanisms of capital accumulation struggle to actually understand what it's worth. Yeah. So the drive to make to commodify more and more things is partly an attempt to make these things make sense. Yeah. Right. To the system, right? Yeah. yeah so that's, that's so it's driven this kind of market. So now most people would call it a market mm-hmm. or an industry, for example. Yeah, so so how, the NGO and, and the NGO sector itself wants to, wants recognition as an industry as part of the economy as a whole. Okay. As well, which is now the NGOs know, are still on the whole non-profit organisations. Yes. Yeah, it depends. Okay, so I guess there's a couple of different things I'm really yeah. interested in here. Is like there's a historical tendency here, yeah. right? So what direction is this going? And particularly, how should we think about things like the NDIS yeah. and the Harper Competition Report? Yeah. But also, where's the edge between non-profit NGOs and for-profit capital? What's going on there? Because I think yeah. because as we're kind of moving into the present, from what the conversations we've had before, this is really what's happening with social welfare, right? So I think that line is becoming blurred. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people might even refer to themselves now as some organisations as not for loss. Not for loss? <laughs> what is that? Because <laughs> they don't want to come out and overtly say they're for profit, but they also don't make a loss either. Where you could actually think... They, you could, they'll you could say, we spend all our money, money. on social services, yeah. but... We don't lose. We don't lose money. If you, you know what I mean. Where there would be a time where you could run, say, a charity or, a, or an NGO, we would be making a lot of time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. And that would be, you know, part of a negotiated thing with your funding. And, yeah, you know, yada yada. And you'd yada. be constantly trying to get more money for people. Yeah, and which ha- it still happens all the time. Yeah. Um, you know that you know the government does not give people enough money yeah. to do what they are trying to do. Yeah. Um, and what we want them to do. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, that's an ongoing thing still to this day. Yeah. Uh, but I guess there's a difference because there's the larger ones that operate. I mean, there's, there'd be organisations, for example, in Australia that provide human services that would have comparable bureaucracies to, to governments. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, talking hundreds of millions of dollars here um, in funding. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of what you And there's this broad spectrum from that big down to an organisation that might get 50 grand a year for example. Mm. So that's kind of the breadth of what you're talking about. Um, so that's kind of the environment in which it exists. And there's a blurred line now. I mean, with the NDIS, for example, um, the you know the health insurance companies are registering as providers. Mm. So Booper, for example, Booper Health, yeah. everyone will see they're building these little offices everywhere and yeah. like dentist clinics and yeah. that kind of thing. Partly that's because they recognise an opportunity. If they have localities... Um, easily accessible for NDIS um, sort of recipients of funding, they can become a planner and a provider under that And do they system. get a fee from that? Yeah. So so say I get, I get a package. So the, let me just make sure I've got this right. So I would get an assessed... How do I... How do I if I'm going you to get assessed? I get assessed. Do I get assessed by Bupa or by the government? By the by a government, from someone from the National Disability Insurance Agency. Yep, so... Um, they come and assess you. They nominate a... There's an agreed upon amount of money. So they give me a package, a package based on their assessment yep. of my services. It's your 
quote unquote choice mm-hmm. to then decide who you go through with that package. So yeah. you might go to one organization and say, can you manage and implement my package? Yeah. So different organizations have different structures. But I that. could also go to Bupa and say, can and go, you do it? Can you do it? And Bupa yeah. would then we'll go, take okay. take an administrative we'll, fee, right? We'll take an administrative fee, but we'll find a physio for you. Yeah. We'll, for 10 co- hours we'll a week. coordinate with it. We'll do That's this. really interesting. We'll do that. And I think the important thing to, to say here against kind of left discourse, right? Like I've spent a couple of years working as a care worker in the welfare services for people with disabilities, that there's a big desire for more autonomy and yes. more choice. Yeah. Right, like also because the system as it is now is shit. Totally, it's and, totally and the, and the shit. The other thing is that under the period, what you might call the neoliberal period, the the life living conditions of people with disabilities terrible. It's been terrible, but it's improved as yeah, well yeah. from what it was before. You yeah. know, so like you know, um, like if you're say a young person with Down syndrome living now, your quality of life will be much higher arguably, than it would be if you are in welfare provision in the 1960s. Oh, yeah, you'd be institutionalised. Yeah, you'd be t- and that's because, it, because there's been, like, a quiet struggle of people with disabilities and people who care about yeah. them, paid and unpaid, family yeah. and supporters, yeah. to actually win better care. And that's fed into the NDIS, right? So Yeah, well, I mean, it goes back to what we are saying before, as yeah. the, there's the market as a kind of... The market, the marriage in political discourse, I guess, of marketized environments and liberatory kind of experiences, experiences. autonomy right um, and that's whether that's rude re- I don't think it's necessarily rude in reality no but a lot of the way that this stuff is talked about is in that yeah. method because the other side would be is you know if you have like a um, you can have the increase in choice within NDIS but if you have the removal of which has happened in lots of states now of subsidies to TAFE courses around computer skills basic literacy and things like that yeah. you keep people trapped in at that. the same time you yeah. know like yeah. So they might have more choice in their services, but their frame, what their their horizon for life shrinks if you now. Have or to like pay an emerging, an emerging issue is advocacy organisations for people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. How do you include that in an individual plan? Yeah, very. You know, so who? Yeah. So they get funding at the moment. But doesn't who, also this go back to the procurement issue too? That like if someone who's not worked in that level, there's been a debate since the Howard years that if you receive government funding, you have to stop doing your political advocacy work. Yeah, does that I mean, does that factor yeah. in at all? It depends on the on the on the government of the yeah. day. I mean, I don't think so necessarily because the the government also and have always funded specific organisations yeah. to do advocacy rather than organisations doing both. And some of it's self discipline because I remember from friends who worked in homelessness yeah. services when Newman was elected, they were told by their bosses not to participate in the social struggles against cutting. To the housing sector. Because they would and, lose funding. Well, but yeah. also because they wanted to be the good organisation. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's a general tendency, it seems to be, of yeah. bigger organisations seem to be accumulating more and more funding. Yeah. They want the government to view them as a partner and be able to develop yeah. a professionalised, disciplined workforce. Yeah. Right? So it, it, this is happening internally yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's a, it's massively massive contradictions in that yeah. sense. So I mean, and I think the NDIS is a good example. But it also I think, um, and you know, I did a thing on the Productivity Commission when I was at uni, a thesis, and there's a huge, great quote about the NDIS being what what they you know this body of neoclassical mm. um, freaks essentially yeah. um, arguing for state instituted markets. Yeah. Um, and this is a collective state instituted market um, that will ensure market behaviour. And when you think about it, a state-instituted market will behave much more like, um, I guess, the conception of a market 
than an actual market. Than a capitalist market. Yeah, yeah. because there's a disciplinary force making people behave yeah. that way. Uh, whereas if it's a market in the general sense, mm. there's all sorts of insider deals and yeah. deals with government and golden handshakes and all that kind it's of stuff. It's more genuinely Hayekian yeah. than, than actual yeah. capitalism. Because there's actually someone saying, you have to act this way and if yeah. you don't, you get nothing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's crucial yeah. to understand that a market wouldn't necessarily act this way, mm. um, but a state-instituted market is much more like yeah, it's fascinating. Sort of a Hayekian or an Adam Smith version yeah. of a market. You yeah, know? yeah. I think like you know, without getting too nerdish, I think people if they read Hayek's Road to Serfdom, they seem to ignore the bits where he goes. And of course, a state is really necessary to <laughs> build and enforce the rules. You know, like he says this all the all the time. So I guess the other, so the NDIS is one of these big changes. So we're seeing the movement to procurement, but the thing that's get a lot of attention is the development of social impact bonds. Yes. So in the for all of those, all of you who have read the Queensland government's mid-year financial and economic <laughs> review, it's not an outlook; it's with an R. The all of the uh, five of you out there, congratulations! <laughs> One thing you'll notice is that their very prominent role is that there are three new social impact bonds. Now, before we get into that, I, there's one other point I want to talk about is that, along with procurement, there's been a new change in welfare provision to something called impact as well, hasn't there? You've talked to me about this before. It's the about, same thing. It's the same thing. Impact investment, as social benefit bonds. They're same the same thing. thing. All right. Okay. So impact investment is the overarching sort of narrative name is given to things like. So this is so this bonds. is how governments are thinking about spending. Yeah. So just to just to recap, the amount of dollars that governments are spending on social reproduction through welfare hasn't gone down. If anything, it's it's more dollars and there's sizable over the last long history. over the yeah. But how it's been provided yeah. is radically And the crucial thing now is as though there's now a recognition, I think, that it's not going to increase. Oh, that is interesting. So we'll have part to... of these new things mm-hmm. are that there's a recognition that there's not going to be more money. We've, it's reached the limit. And is that partly because of the global crisis? I think so, yeah. And we'll, get, we'll probably finish with yeah, okay. talking about that. Yeah. But social impact bonds, what are they? Um, so basically, it's essentially it's the financialization of... Of funding, mm-hmm. um, so um, there's three in Queensland. There's also a couple in New South Wales. Um, the UK has been doing this for a long time, trying to develop a market in the provision of social services. Um, so essentially, yeah, it's sort of like the the key, the pinnacle would be a situation where the government announces a pro, like a sort of a project somewhere, say um, stopping reoffending. Of people coming out of prison. Mm-hmm. This is the the key example everyone uses in the UK, yeah. which has actually just failed. <laughs> but um, anyway, so you know, so it's something that you can put clear measurements on, quote mm-hmm. unquote. So you can say because it's there's a clear line that someone's reoffended or they haven't because it's yeah. recorded. You know, so they raise money. I mean, they didn't do this with the UK one, but this is how it would work. They raise money from private capital mm-hmm. and they set performance benchmarks on the service. Yeah. So. If you reach a 75% of not reoffending, you'll get this much. Yeah. If you reach 85, this much. If you exceed 100, if you get to 100%, so no one reoffends, we'll not only give you money, but we'll give you an extra 10% bonus. Okay. As, as, so a, so as similar, a yield, essentially. Yeah, so similar to how, um, like what already has been existing for decades in, say, yeah. private prisons, where yeah. you have a series of these metrics. Yeah. 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 But then that is packaged up as a bond. Mm-hmm. So you can buy the bond, and if the service. Um, you know, p- 
performs, quote unquote, to 100%, you'll get a 10% so, and, bonus. And by buying the bonds, we're talking about institutional investors, right? So yeah. hedge funds, yeah. super, um, funds super funds, um, all that kind of stuff. So, so it's, this, it's, this it's is acts like of, a normal bond. Like on the on the normal market, and then people will trade it. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, the, and the people will make profits off this, yeah. not just in terms of the income stream it's attached to, but yeah. by the desirability of it. Yeah. So it's it's a way of taking the funding of social welfare yeah. and turning it into a financial asset. And the state has to pay at some point still. So for the state, it mm-hmm. puts off payment because the money is being raised by philanthropy or private capital but at, some point, at the beginning, yeah. but say in 10 years' time, the state's going to have to pay out. That bond. So it puts the payment off. Which and let, Let's also reinforce that uh, really clearly across the global north, in fact, across the world, the state already funds a huge amount of social reproduction yes. through debt. Yeah. Right? That, that's, a, that's a reality. Debt's not going down. Debt's, it, Australia is a unique example that during the early part of the mining boom, our debt did drop, but across the global north, there's a great uh, article by, it's by Streck, Wolfgang Streck, where he basically just shows all debt in across the OECD who just continued to rise since the early 80s. So it fits into that, yeah. that mechanics. And I think it really fits because I've got some stuff. Another report people should read yeah. um, if they get time is the Harper Review on, Tell, yeah, okay. on competition. So the Harper Review happened uh, last year. It's the first review on competition in the Australian economy since the Hillman Review in like I think early 90s, 94. So... Um, under the old Labor government. So it's quite interesting. Um, obviously, the ability of governments to respond to this is limited because they're kind of generally incompetent. Um, not that uh, doing this stuff would be good, but um, the, I guess the discussion about this has been of a lower political level mm-hmm. because of their general kind of malaise at the moment, which is a whole other yeah, topic. topic. Right? <laughs> um, but I think some interesting things they say is, so this is on page 19 of the overview, So it says, looking ahead, structural change in the Australian economy will continue to subdue average rates of growth in productivity. Productivity growth is lower in service sectors such as aged care and health, which are expected to expand, while sectors with higher productivity growth, such as financial services, are expected to decline as a share of the economy. Mm -hmm. So you can see that this sort of fits with that narrative. So you've got this massive expanding part of the economy, which is service provision, Mm -hmm. A declining part, just so say finance, let's hitch one to the other to try and grow, like grow both. Because, and I think when they're talking about productivity, right? Okay, on one hand, it might be harder. That, you know, and I'll link to a blog post where I talk about the problems of productivity measurement. But one of the things, like if you cut through the bullshit, what they're really talking about is how hard you get workers to work. Yeah. Right? And that financialization is a technology that is about imposing discipline in the yeah. labour process, yeah. right? Mm. So that's partly what's going on here with social yeah. impact bonds, isn't it? That it's not just about the way that the state funds it. It's about what is it like to do the work of social reproduction mm. as a paid yeah. worker in this industry. Yeah, and I guess alongside with that, the recommendations from the panel, the panel, the competition review panel, include such things as, so this is page eight of the overview, user choice placed mm. at the heart of service delivery. Mm-hmm. It's a key thing. Uh, governments should retain, should retain a stewardship function. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Um, separating the interests of policy, including funding, regulation, and service delivery. So governments fund. Yeah. Oh, the funding relationship's a bit mixed, mm-hmm. but policy and funding and regulation are all, all separated separate. out. Yeah. 
rather than the same thing. Uh, governments commissioning human services should do so carefully with a clear focus on outcomes, mm-hmm. which again is linked to that sort of financial uh, but and also, but, but also about the transformation of the work of social reproduction. Yep. Because the thing that I've always thought about this, in all the conversations we've had about it, is like what's measurable by a metric. You know that so something like provision of of, of blankets yeah. might be measurable. Yeah. How can you say someone's life is better? Exactly. Right. How can you say it? Yeah. Unless they them so I mean, that's sort of linked to the user choice stuff. Yeah. Um, and the empowering of the user mm-hmm. or the the person with the service, if they're saying their life is better, mm-hmm. um, but then how do you put Who a financial yeah. measure on that? Yeah. It's, just, it's pretty crazy, I yeah. think. Um, so a diversity of providers should be encouraged while taking care not to crowd out community and volunteer services. Uh, and innovation and service provision should be stimulated whilst ensuring minimum standards of quality and access in human services. So I guess I want to, at this point, kind of ask, all right, like, so this is happening in the context of we're now eight years into the global economic crisis. State debt is a major problem for global capitalism. And the problem is that there's a certain level of social reproduction that uh, needs to be provided, but actually states are struggling to pay for that in the time of the downturn. Debt has now become a massive problem. How much of this is real and how much of this is just bullshit? attempting to find a way out of an insolvable problem for the state? I think that a lot of that answer actually lies in the reports of the kind of what they call impact investment groups. Mm-hmm. So impact investment is social benefit bonds, yeah. but it's this kind of overarching term. And who, who are these yeah. groups? So there's a group uh, called the Social Impact Investment Task Force, which mm-hmm. is set up under the G8. Um, it's a global yeah. body. So it's set up under the G8 and they sort of um, are driving, they've driven a lot of the kind of articulation, I guess, Mm. of this kind of idea. And when you read this stuff that they produce, it's pretty mental. (laughs) Um, The the language that they use around it, it's just pretty, it's kind of dumb. Uh, And it's it's kind of like you know that they think it's not going to work, but if they dress it up in some guff, Mm. it'll sound good. So, I mean, and and so there's a, Task force on the G8, and then in every country, there's you know equivalent country-specific tasks. Yeah. So in Australia, the, the one it's called um, the Australian Advisory Board Breakthrough, Breakthroughs um, on Impact Investment, I think is what it's called. Um, so their opening line in there, it's this report that they did up called um, Strategy to Catalyze Impact Investment. Uh, I read it all, so you don't. No one else has to read it. Um, the opening quotes is mental. Um, so it says, this task force is becoming the international vanguard of the revolution. More than 200 able figures are engaged across the G8, Australia and the EU, fake, focusing focus on establishing in, impact investment as a powerful force in each company. So it's almost like this sort of party of individuals in the institutions pushing this thing as some yeah, kind really of interesting, revolutionary sort of... Reshaping. Crazy. I read that and I was like, my little bit of vomit came yeah, into yeah, my yeah. mouth, you know, it's just disgusting. And there's, this is like, this is the same report on page in the um, the forward. So I don't know, what do you call those numbers? The V with the two I's. Roman whatever numerals. That is. Roman numerals. Yep, you know, whatever. seven, page seven. seven. Um, so this is the last thing it's, Stupid. Um, this is not just another report. It's the launch of an ambitious, dynamic program of activity to accelerate and deliver impact and invites you to be a part of building this impact investing market. Together, 
we can demonstrate the possibility and effectiveness of employing financial innovation to improve our security. And then it gets better. There's like a Victor Hugo quote underneath that. You can resist an invading army. You can't resist an idea whose time has come. That's amazing, right? So, uh, yeah. Well, and I, I guess that's part of what's kind of open to be contested now, isn't yeah. it? Is that so? We, I think so. The Queensland state government is experimenting with three of these. They're not. They're, they're, it's still a pretty minuscule part of how welfare provision on a whole is yeah. being carried yeah, it's out. Tiny. But is there any? Do you have any impression of how this is being talked about throughout the industry? Is this a big thing where lots of different organisations are going, okay, this is the wave of what's happening, we have to make sure we're ready for social impact bonds? There was um, the, I think the Brisbane Times reported in November, there was at least a kind of academic and stakeholders conference where they packaged social impact bonds with green bonds and the way they described green bonds were both to raise money for do things like, like, um, like wind, you know, solar power but also that green bonds are going to be part of the state government's climate change mitigation policy. So I think that's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? Go, okay, climate change is happening, so we're going to, say, have rising waters off a beach. How do we work out a, a financialised instrument to raise the funds mm. to mitigate the effects yeah. of ecological meltdown? <laughs> like, but it... But also then having the effects of like the disciplining of the labour force, what kind of metrics does this impose, how much of it's bullshit, how much of it's real? I mean, I guess it's, it's real in a sense that there's serious people with power yeah. um, talking about doing this. And it is happening. Yeah, there's trials. You know, the New South Wales trial has been going for a while. I mean, maybe the use of getting rascal on the Dutch talk because yeah, I don't yeah. really know much about the New South Wales ones. The Queensland ones are in their infancy. Well, I will give you one anecdote um, that rascal told me where uh, so people are having to, like, do research to set up the metrics, right, but the people doing the metrics, doing that research, are imply, employed on zero-hour contracts <laughs> where they have to travel around a city and interview stakeholders. And if the stakeholder doesn't turn up, they don't get paid. That's crazy. So, like, I think this is already how you're seeing yeah. the work of social reproduction being organised in an increasingly contingent, to use all the buzzwords, contingent, precarious kind of fashion, yeah. already playing out as part of this dynamic. Yeah, and I think it, it requires of you to be emotionally invested in it, right? Yeah. Much more than ordinary work yeah. because you're dealing with quite vulnerable people. Which is a particularly interesting part about this industry, And I right? think it goes into, the again, the gender dynamics of that and the percentage of women involved in this workforce. Mm. Uh, historically lowly paid yeah. workforce as well because of that. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, it's as far as the, I guess, the sector, quote-unquote, goes, it's, I guess it would be mixed. I mean, there would be organisations who really want to be partners with the government who would try and embrace this stuff, I think, yeah. um, and are, I think, by and large. Because, um, again, I think it's, it's, it's enmeshed with that whole notion of the social enterprise and that kind of stuff around social corporate work responsibility um so if you really believe in that stuff this is the logical yeah. one of the logical outcomes of those ideas and it's there's a kind i guess there's also a logic that you kind of see put forward in the promotion of these where it says big picture's too full on let's just get some money to make an improvement in people's lives this is going to work you know there's a kind of pragmatism to its craziness right yeah yeah and partly it's also um 
And I think it stems from this legitimate desire of organisations to want to be independent of government mm-hmm. because governments do stuff around. Yeah. Um, they do, like, cut your funding. They do change policies. They, it's not necessarily... Unless you're a really big provider, yeah. unless you're, like, quote-unquote, too big to, va- to fail, um, of which there are, yeah. um, you can lose your funding well, at a whim. I guess you're kind of, like, crossing onto a, an Australian left taboo here, right? Like, and that taboo is that since most of the Australian left are social democratic, there's normally an implicit understanding that government or state provision is somehow superior. No. But I think... Well, I think, yeah. I think the analysis that we're moving towards is actually that you you put forward is that there's an interlocked kind of there's a developing interlocking matrix of state, private NGOs, and private capital that are organising the work of social reproduction, mm. and then it's going to impact on labour uh, on a high, on an underpaid uh, labour force mainly made up of women facing a whole series of biases against people that are responding on these services, this is, that's the dynamic of struggle, not the state versus market dynamic. Hmm. Yeah, and I think, well, I mean, I don't know. I think that it depends on the, the mode of struggle and how you actually voice your ideas about services. So, mm-hmm. for example, I was having a discussion with some older people, as you often do at meetings of the left mm-hmm. um, these days. Um, I'm not actually that young, but, you know, hence our, our issues. <laughs> yeah how weak we are. But anyway, um, so that we're talking about the notion of the, you know, getting unemployment benefits. Yeah. And um, the call came from this, we've got a defence Centrelink. Mm-hmm. The defence Centrelink from a tax. It's like, we, I generally agree with that premise that yeah. we sh- there should be unemployment. I don't disagree with unemployment benefits. But if you went to someone in their 20s who is on Centrelink mm-hmm. and said, oh, you need, you need to defend Centrelink, they'd be like, you fucking mental? Centrelink's a piece of shit. Yeah, they're, they're, like, yeah. so it's the whole thing about like, maybe their experience of Centrelink yep. was not so shit. Like, still shit, a, but not as... Because the, the, well, the tradition of that is it's become so disciplinary and controlling. What? So well, I would defend it, yeah. You have to... If you want to defend unemployment benefits, you have yeah. to have a qualifier, at least, to say the way things work now are shit, yeah. but the concept of having unemployment benefits should be defended. Yeah. And, you know, you're just going in and saying we have to defend this thing... And which is really shit for a lot of people, I think is just, just misses I think, the point. I think this, like, is, this is not even particularly new. In the late 90s, when I was in Wollongong, we were involved in a group against, I think it must have been just after Centrelink was formed after the DSS. Yeah, yeah. And there was a huge wave of redundancies that went through. And so we, I was involved in a campaign group about stopping these, you know, stopping these cuts. Something like double or triple the amount of Centrelink workers applied for the redundancies than were offered. Mm. You know, so you have this situation of like, you know, defend these workers' jobs, but the workers there are like, it's so terrible here, I want to take this opportunity to get out. And it was, I thought for, for me that was a really clarifying moment about the lack of critique of the inheritance of social democracy yeah. and how it doesn't actually jive with... The di- like what you're talking about is the boring or disciplinary nature of these services and people's experiences. Yeah. And people, and whilst... And I mean, this isn't to say, I'm not, there's no blame here yeah, totally. to For the workers, selling right? workers. Yeah. They're working in an institutional environment yeah. which is set up to be run in a certain way. And, and um, actually to make the, the, there's a conflict between Centrelink users and workers because yeah. there's, it's structurally organised that way. It's meant to be like yeah. that. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I think it's not going down that road. Yeah. But it's... Just saying we just have to think about things a bit differently mm-hmm. now. Like the way that service provision happens is different. Yeah. So therefore the people, the way people experience it, it 
is different. Yeah. So then the way we talk about defending it has to change rather than just defensive. It has to take on that bit. Well, how could this actually be better? Yeah, and link to the transformation of society. And buy, right? because people have to buy into it being better to want to defend yeah. it. And I think like this is not just like an abstract conversation because you know we're having this at the beginning of this conversation, the beginning of 2016, where we can be pretty sure that the mining boom is over and potentially there's going to be another downturn in the global economy, right? So over the next couple of years, we might be looking at you know, an increasing need of people in Australia to access unemployment benefits and to access welfare provision, right? In a time where the state is already pretty much up to its neck in debt, right, and already struggling with that debt. So having an idea that goes beyond defending a mythical social democratic past, I think is really, really crucial. Mm. Yeah, and I, I just think, I mean, a lot of this stuff was developed pre, um, sort of, even pre-2008 and stuff. Yeah. So I don't know, I haven't accessed stuff that I talks heard, it in the context yeah. of, of, you know, the current political, the current economic situation. I remember reading somewhere where at least, but there was an argument made, and I'm sorry, I can't remember where it was, where part of the interest in social impact bonds happened because in the wake of the crisis, you There's had these investment, yeah, you know, interest rates are really low, but also you have these financial institutions who've just been massively bailed out, who have all this capital and it needs to go somewhere. Yeah, right? I think so, it's, it's also, so there's also the, the report from the, the G8 group, the Social mm. Impact Investment Task Force, the title of their report, mm. um, The Invisible Heart of Markets. Uh, Not the hand, the heart. Yeah, the heart. Um, so it kind of it talks about that. So there's a quote here that sort of says, the impact investment market represents a huge opportunity for mainstream investors, including pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and independent investment managers. Impact investment is not a charity, but an mm. opportunity to earn a financial as well as social return, mm. doing good, at good and well, while gaining the benefits of improved diversification. Yeah. It's a like it's a, and it's amazing when we think about this. Like, it really reminds me of the work that Lazzarato's written about in um, his book *Making Indebted Man* and governing by, governing by debt. That you know, debt is always a promise of a future return based on today's behaviour. Yeah. So it's always a disciplinary process. So the more of funding of these kind of projects by investments of, of private capital, the more you're going to have this disciplinary dynamic played out all the time because it, you can only behave today on the promise of tomorrow's Yeah, payment. and I, I think it, it also is part of the interest of capital mm. to have a socially, at least on a base level, mm -hmm. a socially functioning environment. Well, I think th so that's what a, social reproduction is about, yeah. right? And I think this is part of this, these quotes is actually trying to say, yes, it's, it's this kind of interest in corporate resp social responsibility, mm. but I think it's also that a realisation that we have to balance things out on some level yeah. to be able to continue to make the profits that we want. Because, um, so because it's a, melting down, like this, it's melting. You read yeah. this quote. So then. there's a quote here in the Australian equivalent, that one from the, the yeah. Vanguard of the Revolution yeah. report. Um, <laughs> anyway, so a guy, Richard Brandweiner, Chief Investment Officer for First Aid Super, says here that the pools of capital managed by fiduciaries, so like super funds, etc., in Australia are greater than our GDP in size. Mm. The decisions we make about how to invest that capital have broad implications for the financial system and our society. As allocators of capital, we need to examine our roles as contributors to our collective future and actively engage in the development of solutions that can both deliver the retirement needs of our members and help shape society, the society that we want to retire into. 
See, that's fascinating, right? Because the thing that it makes me think about is if you're looking about at the moment, what are the two modes of attempting to deal with social reproduction for people who have been marginalised? Okay, so there's this kind of stuff that we've been talking about, about state funding for various different provisions of social welfare, but that's led to being part of the contribution to such an increase in debt that that's actually a destabilising yeah. force. Or what you have around the world are these disposable populations that are policed by paramilitary-style policing which are exploding in social conflict, right? You know, this is what's happening in the US. We've had these... So the cat and here's thinking... in China. And in China, right? So, so here you have... down on, on labour. On labour, yeah. Labor. So here you have these kind of thinkers for capital trying to chart a road in between, right? Like mm. a road where you can actually have a level of service provision where people are integrated into the society. You don't need cops with machine guns and APCs for patrolling. And you don't patrolling. need to increase debt at the And you same don't time. need to increase debt and it's going to be a profitable... Mm. So it... Who knows? Like, and I guess, like, rather than being predetermined, it'll really part of that's going to depend on the behaviour of workers in these sector. You know, it's going to be depend on people who receive these services, articulating their interests and what effect that'll happen. And I think it's also based on a particular mode of capital mm. production, i.e., finance, yeah. maintaining its dominance, which at the moment you can say is up in the air. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really struggling with China sort of tanking mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. So can the finance mode of kind of capitalist productivity and, and production um, team with this kind of... And again, it, it, I mean, that last quote I think really raises the issue of super as well I, I, um, as a sort of tool yeah. of both um, an extension of investment for the state and for capital to mm. use for our own reproduction. So essentially we're paying... If, if super is used that in this way, yeah. we're we're, pa we're we're paying for our own, yeah, you know. But I, I guess out of our super, um, and also and like, what happens if if those funds collapse? Collapse totally, uh, which could feasibly happen. You know? Because like when we're talking about finance capital, right? Who draws incomes from that? Almost everyone. It's not yeah. just you know finance capital sits in the banks right. of just a couple of corporations. Mm -hmm. All businesses, you know, um, unions do, all in our super. So you've got this dynamic where they have to have a profitable return to fund a whole range of incomes. Yeah. yeah there's a lot compounded here in, in yeah. social reproduction. Yeah, and I think, I guess I guess we're moving to, we should probably finish up. With yeah. I get, I'm really interested if you think there's been any kind of, um, have you seen much debate about this amongst people who work either in the state or in these NGOs? Starting to manifest some kind of critique, or do you think that's that's not really? Come? I mean, there's people who just I think there's probably people who just have a predisposition, probably like myself, yeah. um, to think that there's something really wrong with this. Mm. Um, but in the sense of actually doing a thorough critique and analysis of it, yeah. not really. So I think that's probably something, and I think it has to be linked into the broader issue of social reproduction. Mm. It can't just be. Financialization is bad, mm -hmm. which seems to be our kind of ad hoc response to everything. Yeah, it's, it's totally um, inadequate, And it's right? inadequate in, in explaining how society actually works, I think. So I think it has to be a bit of an overview of, you know, how do we actually respond to this, not just as a market intervention into social services, but also a critique of, of how is that a reflection of how we have society at large, I think. Uh, and so that's, for me, that's quite crucial because mm. then you don't actually encompass the whole lot and any resistance will be limited to the kind of shitty situation that we have now, which yeah. is still shit. Yeah, we can't um, have a defence of the present, right? No. Because so it's falling apart. Yeah, so if, you know, it's 
it's kind of that, you know, like it's really hard, I think, mm. <laughs> to in the one sense um, critique something that's coming and, and sort of also critique what's happening now for something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that we haven't been able to do. Um, and in, in the kind of, and we sort of mentioned the malaise of the political class and their inarticulation of any kind of future. Mm-hmm. So in lieu of that, we kind of have to address that issue because it's what, it, to me, is like crucial in the current mm. sort of political period around what do we actually want to live, how do we want to live, mm. uh, whether it's in a city or whatever, um, and how do we want to ensure everyone has is adequately cared for yeah. and that kind of stuff. And can so, flourish. Yeah. Um, because at the moment, what's happening now isn't really doing that. No. What they're what is being proposed isn't going to do that. What existed before didn't necessarily do that. So what do we want? Mm. You know, um, I don't necessarily know, but I think part of the analysis of this stuff is actually trying to get people to start thinking yeah. about that and you and know, develop a collective process. Yeah, which we might have to do. Pretty quickly, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> depending on what happens over the next six months to two years. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a good point to finish it on. Uh, you've been listening to Living the Dream, the podcast of the Hoo Ha Group. Thanks, Rob. That was really fascinating. All right. Thanks.